Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and we are here today to dispel the doom and gloom around the midterm elections and to share some very basic facts about how politics works and how to look at politics in this moment and what we can all do to beat back the forces of reaction that have been unleashed across this country and which will play a very big role in these midterm elections. If you read any articles about the election by like the mainstream political press, you've seen the conventional wisdom that the Democrats are doomed. And it's just taken as an article of faith. It's almost like the weather. It gets cold in November and December. It gets hot in the summer. The party who has the White House loses in the midterm elections. And it's just so presented as a given. I even saw some article about how Biden's staffers are already trying to prepare for being investigated by a Republican Congress next year. And this just these articles are unrelenting. You know, president's poll numbers, Democratic prospects, the phrase Democrats are facing these headwinds. And it's just so ubiquitous that it's unquestioned and unchallenged, but it's also wrong. And that's just, this is not how politics works. And it's really it's lazy thinking and bad math. So the way we should be thinking about this, the overarching reality of this country is that there are more of us than there are of them, and that the people who want the United States to be a multiracial democracy, there are more of those people than there are those who want it to primarily be the province of straight, white, cis, Christian men. And that is the fundamental battle that's taking place. And you're seeing it at these states as those who have the narrow, hate-filled view are like unleashed and empowered, passing all these laws. Don't say gay, anti-trans, critical race theory, voter suppression. They just are running amok in terms of their policies and their proposals and their statements. But the very fact that Trump is not the president and we're going to have a Supreme Court justice named Katanji is proof that they do not represent the majority of people within the country. And so the question then is, as we look at this midterm election, will more of our people, the new American majority, come back out to vote in the midterms then will the right wing and the conservatives who have been whipped into a frenzy of fear and hatred. That's the underlying reality. That's why they're passing all these policies and flaming all of these, you know, hot button issues and whatnot is to keep people riled up and fearful and angry so that they'll come out and vote in large numbers. Whereas our side is busy looking at, you know, position papers and think tank lengthy documents that are like thoughtful and considered, but do nothing to convey the sense of urgency and an attack that we're facing. And so that's really the prescription for the midterms is that if we think about what we're going to do with our time, energy and our, and our resources is what can we do to make sure that our people understand the urgency of the hour and turn out in large numbers? And that's the fundamental message of 2020 that applies to now. If we turn out in large numbers, we will, in fact, win. And we will hold the Congress. We will win these gubernatorial elections and we'll win uh, these races at the state level. But if we don't turn out, then that's the prescription in which uh, we would actually lose um, within the midterms. And so that's the fundamental issue. It's nothing to do with headwinds. It's nothing to do with, you know, title charts or any kind of scientific anything. It's about can we get our people out? which means can we back the right candidates who inspire people? Can we invest in the groups who are doing the work of getting people out to vote? 
And can we send the signal that we are, in fact, engaged in this fight that's going on across the country? So that's what we're going to get into today. And so for that conversation, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Charlene Chang, who, what I understand, is making up for lost quarantine time by zipping around the San Francisco Bay Area, hitting as many events and parties as possible, apparently. And also joined by our esteemed data doctor, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega, who at this week, I believe, is experiencing the excitement and trauma of being mother to a son who's about to go to his first high school prom. Greetings to you both, and how are you guys doing? Hi, Steve. Um, This is Julie, and I'm doing great. I am, as you said, right in the middle of prama, which is the combination of prom trauma and prom drama. (laughs) I never heard of that. I've never heard of you. Julie. Yeah. yeah. So uh, another thing you may have never heard of is a promposal. So this is like all the rage on social media. You have to do a whole big thing that, of course, has to be recorded and uploaded to your social media of you asking your date to go with you to prom. So oh, my God. Yes, yes, yes. What if she says no? What if she says no? Talk about (laughs) trauma. I mean, I did know about that um, trend and it gave me prama because I didn't get to be asked to my junior prom. And I was like, uh, but that's just double. I mean, at least we didn't have those proposal. I mean, that's just so much pressure and oh and a lot of yeah, yeah just just yeah. Too much. and social yep. media and yeah i know yep. it's a different generation <laughs> and and when you add in the fact that they you know didn't get to do this last year or the year before because of mm. covid there's just all this extra pent up pressure yeah. right that's wow. all on this one oh it's big a lot. prom yeah Ooh. yeah so we've we've had been dressing up our beagles and doggy tuxedos <laughs> um <laughs> Stay tuned on Facebook for that one. And uh, I've been buying platform shoes for my son, the fashionista. He's got to keep it unique. And uh, we're getting ready for the big photo shoot over at the reflecting pool in front of the Lincoln Memorial. So that's that's what's going on over here. Wow. (laughs) Okay, I know this is not what our episode is about today. But now I've been triggered into this. I just got this idea. Imagine you raise money for like a nonprofit whose main purpose is to disrupt the regular proms and you hold like this other party. And it's kind of like, you know, for all the kids who are kind of not the cool kids (laughs) and they don't feel like they got invited or prom pros old or they don't know where to go. You can go to the other party and it's going to be way cooler because I'm going to host it. (laughs) I like that. I like that. You think Charlene's joking. You just keep you can't pay attention to your Facebook feed. This is, this is like the ultimate revenge. <laughs> anyway, too much information. That's funny. Yeah. So we, like Steve, have been saying um, it's just been nice to kind of start to dip the toes in the water of some social life. I'm still doing a lot of it outside. We live in, you know, Northern California, so we're lucky it gets warmer sooner. So some good outside events, like one festival we went to last weekend, some egg hunt and some dinners. Yeah, like we celebrated a Seder with a close friend we hadn't seen in over two years. Went to our first movie. My husband and I went to our first movie theater in what felt like forever um, to see the amazing movie. I just got to plug it at least once on the show. The movie called Everything Everywhere All at Once by the amazing Michelle Yeoh. Highly recommend it. And it just feels good. It's springtime, this bit of opening to start to, you know, be a little bit normal and having a chance to spend time with people Mm -hmm. in a bit more of a normal way. 
and beginning to make like those memories again and having those rituals again. But uh, no, no proms on the horizon for me. Well, but now you know you've got yeah. like a, you know <laughs> ten years to get ready for your child, and Julia could be your consultant and advisor. I'm I'm gonna start by then. There's gonna be the alt- alternate prom corporation. There you go. <laughs> Disruptor. Anybody who wants to give me seed money, just contact me. So regarding key places, voters should really be focusing in on for this year's midterms, which is going to be the focus of our episode today, uh, where I just wanted to give everybody who's listening a heads up. We're not actually going to spend too much time on Georgia this episode because we talked a lot about it at length in our last episode. And that was with Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Greg Bluestein and also talking about his new book, Flipped. So if you missed it, definitely check it out because uh, that was a real in-depth episode about Georgia, what's happening now politically. Uh, Greg just gave us the scoop because he's been an Atlanta and Georgia journalist for a really long time. And Steve, in terms of fundraising, you had suggested in our newsletter, which came out last week, that anyone looking to split up their political contributions this year should be considering giving 50%, a whopping half, to Stacey Abrams' campaign for governor. You know, not entirely surprising, because if you follow us, we're big, you know, proponents and uh, have explained a lot about Stacey's role. But 50% ask you, I don't think I ever got to ask you in your own words, like, why are you suggesting 50% for this midterm if people have a type of political contribution budget that they should just, boom, put half? This is, it came from, I was actually talking to um, one of my running buddies, Eileen Goldman, around, like, she wanted guidance, right, around where to give. And I, that's what it, you know, triggered in my mind is, like, people are probably looking for some clarity. And there's so much, particularly with social media now, and emails, and it's like, it's overwhelming in terms of how do you figure out where to focus. And so that was the driving impetus around trying to give some clarity um, and direction in that regard. Oh, and then also just to this point, yeah, so we... If anyone, any of our listeners do not subscribe to the Democracy in Color newsletter, I highly recommend that you do do that. You can get, do, go to democracyincolor.com and you can subscribe. It comes out every week, provide really good content, things we're listening to, things we're watching and reading, et cetera. And so this past one you're saying had these recommendations around where to give. And on that front too, there is a, let's say upfront, so we don't bury the lead. So we'll, we'll put in the show notes, we'll have a link to the places to give that we um, are going to talk about in this podcast. So first of all, I was just trying to give people some coherence um, around, because again, there's so many things. And then there also was a question around, do you just spread it all out? Do you give like, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit everywhere and try to figure out how to make that calculation. So I thought like, well, if you have a budget, let's, how do you allocate it out? And also it's first quarter. We'll actually have more recommendations in June or July around where things actually stand. Okay. So in terms of the why Stacey's race is so important, and I think deserving of half of your budget at this point, is that for a few different reasons, short-term, medium-term, and long-term. So as I was saying up top, right, this whole election is about, can we get our people out to vote? And that's the story of what's happened in Georgia over the past decade, is that they've built the operation, created the organizations, hired staff all across the state, I was able to maximize and turn out historic numbers of people. And that's what defeated Trump there. And that's what elected Warren Akhenosov and flipped the Senate. So can we do that again? And the whole operation in 2022 is going to flow through Stacey's campaign. And so to the extent that you actually give money to Stacey's gubernatorial campaign, that's the entity that's going to coordinate 
the staffing, the voter mobilization, the voter contact, that's going to then raise all of the votes of all the Democrats running within the state. So that's the way that Stacey's campaign connects in all these different things. So everybody benefits from the Stacey's campaign across the board, so not even just her campaign specifically. So then short term, Raphael Warnock's reelection to the Senate is key. You know, we have no margin to spare in the U.S. Senate, and we've got to hold Warnock's seat, and we'll talk a little bit about Arizona in a minute, making sure the Abrams operation is fully operational and fully effective and funded is one of the best ways to help Warnock as well. So that's the short-term, immediate-term piece. Uh, then medium-term, we need to be preparing now for 2024, the coming attempted coup part two within this country. I mean, Trump was famously caught on tape trying to intimidate the Georgia Secretary of State in 2020, saying, I need you to find 11,000 votes for me. If we don't think that's going to happen again in 2024, we are completely um, naive and unprepared. So the way that you fight that back about that is, for one, getting the governorship. So if they sit the governor, then that's a whole key piece. And the other is the Secretary of State, right? So B. Wynn is running. She was on a podcast earlier this year. And so if the Secretary of State and the governor, people overseeing the elections, are actual Democrats and good, strong champions of democracy, that will protect us in 2024 from their attempted coup in that regard. And then long term... It has to do with the continued battle within the Progressive Democratic Party around strategy, direction, and allocation of resources. And the people continue to be obsessed with trying to change the minds and win over the, win over the people who are not going to be with us. So rather than understanding the new American majority, maximizing the numbers of people of color, progressive whites, young people, tying that together into a powerful winning electoral coalition as happened in 2020 in Georgia and in um, Arizona, there's still this thrust around, well, how do we get the conservative people, those who aren't with us, let's not alienate them any further, et cetera. And that, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars on that when we should be pouring money into Stacey Abrams-like strategies and direction. And Stacey wrote a whole piece, and we should link to this again in the show notes, how to turn your red state blue. It says it may take 10 years, but you should do it anyways. And so... If she can win this race, it will have this long-term impact around strategy and its outsized leveraging effect of being able to influence the allocation of those tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. And if we start spending those dollars right, then we can flip Texas, we can flip Florida, we can flip North Carolina, and that will transform the political balance of power in this country for decades. So that's the long-term benefit. So for all of those reasons is why I think we suggest allocating half of the money uh, to Stacey's campaign. That is like so um, helpful because I can really sense that for some people hearing, oh, we're saying 50% for Stacey, that it can come off as like, well, that's a lot for one person, right? Because you think of it as like one candidate, one person, but just getting to understand the nuances of all the implications and ripple effects uh, is really helpful. And I wanted to remind people of another, just what I think is just an exciting fact that is I don't think reported on enough, and it's just a real source of hope, which is Georgia is becoming increasingly more diverse every day. So Georgia is one of the blackest states in America. African-Americans make up 33% of the state's population, right? That's one third. And that's according to the 2020 census. And over the past decade, the state's Asian-American Latino populations also are just booming. The number of Latinos in Georgia increased by 32% in 10 years. They currently make up 10% of the state. 
And within that same decade, the number of Asian Americans in the state jumped by more than 200,000 people and are increasingly a voting black that is making and breaking um, elections and races. Uh, Asians now make up 4.4% of Georgia's state population. So I know that was a lot of numbers, but seriously, like people just need to remember and you know feel excited and hopeful about the fact that just the number of people of color in that state just keeps growing. And I know the the haters on the right, they're trying to do all they can do to shut down and, and stop those people from voting. The truth is that that population is going to just increasingly become more and more diverse. Charlene, let me just add uh, another thing, which is that a lot of people don't realize how much the composition of the country overall and the electorate in particular is is changing every day, right? Mm-hmm. The trend line is absolutely clear in terms of the country becoming browner day by day. So if you look at it just in terms of young people, we're already at a majority of people under the age of 18 being people of color. And you know, if you look every day, every hour, more people turn 18 who are people of color than white and of course become eligible to vote, right? And that has a huge impact in particular in some of these key states that we're, we're talking about right now. And when you think about sort of the younger categories of voters and potential voters, Dems always do better with young people, right, than Republicans do. So you look at Stacey uh, in her 2018 race, she won 18 to 29 year old voters by 30 points. Right. So that's just an incredible, incredible. um, you know, advantage if you're able to really speak to and and inspire those younger voters to come out and vote for you, which obviously Stacey's really great at. So that's something to really keep in mind, particularly in light of all the doom and gloom that Steve was referring to earlier. It's like you can't forget these other things that are also happening, right? She lost in 2018 by 54,000 votes. So since 2018, 500,000 young Georgians have turned 18 and, you know, have the ability to vote in this November's election for Stacey. Amazing. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to make a little quip here, but uh, think of this. Get out the vote prom. Okay. <laughs> hey, I'm saying I'm, I'm on fire. I'm on fire. You are on fire. We have to rain Charlene in. But this, you, know, you were just saying about the young people thing, and I just wanted to, you know, there's a, it just it was, it was conveyed to me recently, right? So one of the uh, person that I work with, Angel's a, a 30-something um, nurse in the Bay Area, and she kind of knew of Stacy generally, but her niece is like 18, 19, and is a huge Stacy fan, right? And so that I think is like reflective of the trends and the dynamics, which also get, plays into this point about the long-term implications of this, um, of this race going on there. All right. Let's pivot to talking about Arizona. And back in October, we had an episode, we talked about why Arizona is going to be so important this upcoming midterm. I feel like Georgia gets a lot of attention and I just don't know if people tune it to Arizona quite as much as they should. Just to remind everyone, there are more than 2 million Latinos in Arizona. Again, that's based on 2020 census and that's about one third of that state's population. Native and indigenous people who are smaller in other states in terms of percentage of the population in some other states are actually make up a meaningful percentage in Arizona, 5.3% of the total population. And that's more than Arizona's African-American population. And that's more than 
Arizona's Asian American population. So those are just from real top favorable demographic trends to keep in mind for Democrats in Arizona. And uh, this year, some of the key races that we're paying attention to and asking people to pay attention to in Arizona, outside of Senator Mark Kelly's bid for reelection, include the Secretary of State race and several state legislature races. So, Julie, I wanted to ask you before we dive into the numbers and details, what, in your opinion, is at stake in Arizona? Well, Arizona is definitely just as important as Georgia, but it's less famous, right? That's the only real difference between the two states in terms of how much attention we should really be paying to them. Arizona was really a key factor in defeating Trump and flipping the Senate, the national level. And so, you know, they're going to continue to play an outsized role, you know, going forward. And just to kind of give folks a little context and background to like, what is Arizona, right? I mean, Arizona is that part of the Southwest, just right in the middle that was part of Mexico, really not that long ago, right? It's a border state that's right in the middle of so many of the big sort of national controversies that um, exist right now around multiracial America and other questions like that. It's chock full of Latinos and Latino voters, as Charlene mentioned. And, you know, if you just remember back to 2010, which seems like forever ago, but it really wasn't that long ago. Arizona and the people in Arizona really became national leaders in the whole anti-immigration policies and the attacks and really ugly, ugly, harsh attacks uh, against immigrant uh, people, you know, very much like that was the, the hotbed, right? The snake pit of it all. And it was SB 1070, also known as the show me your papers law that really sort of um, became a catalyst for so many people to stand up, rise up and fight back against all of that anti-immigrant sentiment that was just oozing all over Arizona. We lost that battle, but we're winning the war overall in terms of Arizona really you know, becoming a much more, you know, I think some people are ready to maybe say it's no longer purple, but really definitely trending more blue. That whole experience of SB 1070 and fighting back against it radicalized an entire generation of activists and organizations whose names now in the circles that, you know, we run in are household names, right? So Monsi Arredondo, um, you know, Tomas Robles, Alejandra Gomez, you know, the organizations that they lead, like Lucha, One Arizona, Arizona Wins, and all that whole constellation of organizations, that all came from that energy and that, you know, commitment to fighting back that really got going at the much faster pace than it had been before in 2010 and just kept going from then on. And if you just think about how many individuals, those groups and the people around them registered to vote, it's hundreds of thousands of, in particular, people of color who've been added to the voter rolls, right? And it was those voters that have come into the mix that enabled Biden to win in 2020 and will, you know, be so much of the energy behind what we're able to do this coming November. Yeah, you got me. Thank you for all that, Julie. You got me thinking about, you know, I just um, helped wrap up the last, last editing pass of Steve's 
amazing manuscript for his new book. How, <laughs> how We Win yes. the Civil War, coming to you soon this fall. And I am um, so proud of Steve and so excited for the book and love so many parts of the book. But really, like what you, when you were talking, I was reminded again of how excited I was and intrigued by what Steve was able to lay out in terms of this arc of, you know, going from not being considered a state that was at all possible to turn blue to the, the wins that they're having there and, and the recent wins. And I wanted to just quickly share this. You had mentioned Alejandra Gomez and Tomas Robles uh, Jr. They had an op-ed in the New York Times in 2019. And I just want to quote from that op-ed that they wrote. It's such a powerful quote. Arizona Republicans no doubt hoped the law would chase out every immigrant, documented or undocumented. Some did leave, but many more stayed, determined to turn their fear and anger into political power. Yeah. And I just think in terms of the, the what you, know, you guys are both saying, just pair that in mind and put these numbers in, into context, right? So they have registered hundreds of thousands, I think it's upwards of 500,000 people, um, mainly people of color to vote. Biden won the state by under 11,000 votes, right? To put those different pieces together in terms of where, and then if you think about the trend in the arc, as we were talking about with uh, young people in Georgia, 62% of people under 18 in Arizona are people of color. So the trend is very, very clear in terms of where things are actually heading. And so that's why that's the context of which we're looking at this year's elections. So another thing to understand and to get a full appreciation of what's going on in Arizona, and like Julia talked about, um, SB 1070 and the show me your papers bill and how anti-immigrant and, and how hostile that was and how that sparked this whole movement um, over the course of the past decade of activists and organizers fighting back. One of the first main battles of that fight was the effort to recall the author of that bill, Russell Pierce, who was a you know, right wing Republican. And what the movement is, they went and got a more moderate Republican to run against him. And so they recalled Pierce. It was the first recall, I believe, in the history of Arizona. He was the, one of the most powerful people in the, the state on the, on the Republican side. And it was a major, major blow, both uh, objectively and then symbolically as well. And so that battle is captured in a book um, by Randy Paras, who was the lead organizer of that effort to recall Pierce. And that whole effort, the success of it, really inspired and galvanized the movement to move forward. And Randy's actually now the, uh, uh, the leader of the uh, education unit within Arizona and a key player there. But I really recommend people take a look at his book, Dignity by Fire, that goes step by step into uh, how they actually went about uh, recalling Pierce and what they were up against, including then state legislator Kirsten Cinema trying to squash the movement and stop them from going after Pierce in a, a preview of the role that she has played out over the rest of the decade. So, Julia, since we know now that Arizona is just as important as focusing on Georgia this year. What do you feel are some of the key points or key factors for us to pay attention to? So I think probably one of the things that gets lost in the big national picture is the state legislature. In Arizona, the state legislature is the closest in the country to us being able to flip it from red to blue. Uh, there is uh, only one seat separating us in from being able to take over 
the legislature in both the House and the Senate chambers there. So just tremendous potential. Not going to be easy, but it's at least numerically the closest of all the states out there. And of course, if you flip a state like Arizona's legislature, you can then block voter suppression and protect the results of the election in 2024 so that the Republicans are not able to do all the silly gamesmanship that they did engage in. Um, right. Post let me just interrupt on that, Julie, and just amplify that point. I think that's something that's flying under the radar far too much is that one of the things that they began to flirt with in 2020 was trying to get the state legislatures to throw out the results of the statewide election, claiming fraud. And then the state legislature would put in place whoever they think should be mm. the person to have won the election. And so they, mm. they began to tap dance around that There's been some legislation in some states moving that forward to lay the groundwork for 2024. So that's why it would be so significant if we can flip that legislature, then we can block those kind of shenanigans in 2024. Exactly. So in terms of flipping it, uh, we need 31 seats in the House chamber and then 16 in the Senate in order to have control. Okay. so ultimately, there are five districts that we need to be focused on going into November. Those are the ones that are competitive and where there's going to be a lot of investment, a lot of attention, a lot of people really focused on this. So Dems are starting out with a solid 24 House seats in 12 of the ledge districts. Those are considered to be locked down for the Dems due to the way that the new maps were drawn post uh, census 2020. And then there are these other five districts that are considered toss-ups, right? And each of those districts has two House seats that are going to be up for grabs. And we need to win six out of those 10 potential seats in order to get to a tie situation with the Republicans and be able to you know, stop them from any sort of action that is negative. Now, key to flipping that, those districts is going to be the turnout efforts for infrequent people of color and Democratic voters. So these races are going to be decided by just a couple of thousand votes. That's historically how it's worked in Arizona in these ledge races. And we've got 20 to 30,000 infrequent people of color voters in these districts. So it's definitely there are enough people there to move the needle toward the Dems, but it's going to be a turnout game to make that happen, right? Districts, um, the new lines post-2020 were drawn on past voting patterns and party preferences of the voters who live in those newly drawn districts. But many of these voters have actually never really been asked for their vote especially the Latino voters in those districts. So some of the districts actually have significantly lower voter turnout among Latinos, which creates an opportunity situation for us because a big push for increased turnout there in November could actually lead to some really surprising results. So let me just give you two examples. In LD9, for the 2018 race for governor, the Democrat lost there by 3,400 votes. But in that district, there were well over 20,000 registered Latino voters who just didn't cast a ballot in that cycle. And we have a similar pattern over in LD16. In 2018, they lost by 5,400 votes, but there were 17,000 registered Latinos who sat out that election. And what should people know in terms of which key candidates to back for these races? 
so we'll be, um, you know, figuring out more people as we sort of go through and see how things are shaking out. But we do know to highlight at this point, District 9, which is actually, it's one of those swing districts, but it actually leans a bit blue toward the Dems. And um, that, that district encompasses the Mesa, Arizona region. And there are two particular candidates who will be important in terms of flipping the legislature overall. One is Eva Birch, who's running for the state Senate seat there. And then uh, Lorena Austin, who is running for the House seat. So as Julie was mentioning, the key to flipping these seats is going to be voter turnout. And that as we were talking about the, the over this past decade, all these activists have put together this amazing coalition and network of organizations that do this kind of work. So one of the organizing center of a lot of that effort is through a coalition called Arizona Wins that Lucha and other organizations are all part of. And so we're going to have a link in the show notes to a Democracy in Color link where you can give and the money will be allocated out to different key races and places for 2022. One of the places we'll go to is we'll go to Arizona Wins. Okay, last but not least, let's talk about Cali. I know Julie, you're not here, but Steve and I are here. Uh, Steve, why is California so important to this midterm cycle? And I have to ask this myself because in my mind, I'm like, you know, California is a dumb state. It's blue. Is it really that important considering everything else going, you know, all the other races in the country, this midterm election season? Uh, what, what is there actually to worry about in California? Yeah, well, it's not just a question of worry about what's the opportunity. And that California actually could be the pivotal state in terms of Californian Nancy Pelosi staying as the speaker in terms of Democrats continuing to hold the House of Representatives. And there are several seats in California that formerly were Republican held in the House of Representative seats. Then the Democrats took them in 2018 with high turnout and mobilization. And then we narrowly lost them in 2020 as there was a huge turnout for Trump um, in these more closely contested areas. And so the fate of the House of Representatives is at stake writ large. That's where the doom and gloom is greatest in terms of Democrats are going to lose and it's all a foregone conclusion, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't actually have to be that way at all if we can have high turnout in these key closely contested um, House of Representatives races. And so they, there are a number of them all over the country, but in particular, there are these seats in California that who somebody was telling me that the, one of the top Democratic officials was talking to the uh, leadership of this group, uh, Communities for New California, which did a lot of work in turning out voters of color. And they were saying that you know, they were rattling off the numbers of districts that they thought we could actually flip with a high turnout operation. And this person's like eyes were getting bigger and bigger. So California can be quite key to holding the House of Representatives in 2022. Julie, can you break down which seats Democrats have the most potential to pick up in California this year? So Democrats have the best chance of pickups in places that we won in 2018, but lost in 2020. So that's uh, one seat in the Central Valley and two seats in Orange County and one in Santa Clarita. So in the Central Valley, the Republican incumbent David Valadeo, I think that's how you say his name, was one of only 10 Republicans who cast a yay vote when Trump was impeached after his supporters breached the U.S. Capitol. And redistricting has made the portion of the valley that he represents more Democratic leaning than it was in the past, which is a good thing, creates opportunities. 
Over in Orange County, the Republican incumbents are even more vulnerable, though, because the two districts there um, offer a pickup chance for Democrats with a it, because they each have a slight tilt to the left. And finally, in Santa Clarita, we're looking at District 27, and that used to be a GOP stronghold, but it's been flipping back and forth between both of the parties since 2016. And Democrats, do you have a chance here to unseat the Republican incumbent, Mike Garcia? Before we wrap up, I just wanted to remind everyone and highly recommend that everyone check out in the show notes, we're going to be including a link that we set up where you can contribute to the places and people and candidacies that campaigns that we're recommending. And it's really neat. It can set it up so that it just splits it evenly, or you can make your own amounts. Um, So definitely check out that link. And again, I want to encourage everyone to check out and sign up for our newsletter if you're not already signed up, because in our newsletter is where we're going to be putting, especially as the election season increasingly heats up, just tips on where to give, where to pay attention to, and just all sorts of deep insight and analysis. I think that, quite frankly, I don't know that you'll be getting anywhere else. So if you're not already a subscriber to our newsletter, please do subscribe. All right. That is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Charlene and Julie, for sharing all that information. And thank you, listeners, for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcast, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. And as we mentioned, subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at, at Democracy in Color. And that definitely follow us on Facebook because it, it, it's not an impossibility that there may be some photos from Julie's um, prom extravaganza uh, going on that we might try to link to or share over there. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.